One of the things that has been difficult and wonderful about this series in the Psalms is that it is just so hard to express things like what Joe has tried to convey and what we hear in this song that we're going to sing after the sermon today. How do you convey God's love? How do you express that? That's what the Psalms are trying to do, and that's what we are trying to do as we look into God's Word each week in this series, is what, how do you describe God? How do you describe God in the way that we experience Him? And that's what we're doing in this series called Marvelous God, Knowing Our Father through the Psalms, trying to get some sense of what it's like to live in relationship with Almighty God and how as we live in relationship with Him, we start to understand more and more what He's like. And Scripture is just full of verses and stories and depictions and descriptions of what God is like, and it's really quite overwhelming. It's really quite hard to comprehend. I actually... um, came upon a great description of the way that we read the Psalms because we, we've talked about this a little bit. We read the Psalms differently than we would read another book of the Bible. And recently I came across this, upon this description that I think describes it really well and actually speaks very specifically to the Psalm that we're looking at this morning. And it has to do with the Smithsonian. Um, we could call it a museum, but that would be kind of a radical understatement. I don't know if... Has anybody ever been to the Smithsonian? Okay, wow, that's a lot of you. It's like on the other side of the country and everything, but a lot of you have been there. The Smithsonian is actually 19 museums and a zoo, because 19 museums wasn't enough. 19 museums and a zoo make up the Smithsonian. And depending on which part of the museum you were to go into, you would change your expectations. So if I were to walk into the Air and Space Museum, for example, I might find in there a jet engine on display, And below that jet engine, I would see a diagram of a jet engine and a description of a jet engine. It would tell me the history of the jet engine and how they they came up with it and how it's supposed to work and how they built it. And I have clear instructions if I were to have the resources and the time and the know-how, I could probably build a jet engine based on what I would find in there, just from research in there. I would leave with a clear idea of how it's supposed to work and what it's supposed to do and how they came upon it and all of those things. But if I were to walk from the Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian into the National Gallery, what I would find in the National Gallery is a bunch of paintings on the wall. Just paint on canvas on a wall, similar maybe to what you're seeing here, probably a little better. (laughs) And underneath those paintings there would be no diagram. There would be no explanation of the logic behind the painting. There would be no description of the history of how the artist came to this painting and painted it in this precise way for these precise reasons. I wouldn't try to go home and make one of my own. I wouldn't have clear instructions. I would just be left with me in a painting and a feeling. I would just see it and feel something, not because of the words, but because of the image. Now, some paintings, when I see them, and maybe you've had this experience, they, they just, I just like it. I can't even describe why I like it. I just, I just find myself attracted to it. Some paintings, when I see them, they make me feel angry. Some paintings make me really uncomfortable. Some just make me happy or relaxed. Sometimes I could tell you why 
Sometimes I couldn't, but an image, a painting, can convey a lot of things, but it maybe conveys something a little differently to each person, and the artist intends for it to make a statement that we hope we hear from it. That's a little bit like how we approach Scripture. If I were to approach the book of Romans, it would be much more like walking into the Air and Space Museum, where I would see clear instruction. This is laid out very logically and very precisely, and by the time I'm done, I've got a pretty good idea of what I'm supposed to do. It may be hard to do it. I may not have all the resources to do it, but I'd have all the pieces that I could put together, and I would know what I'm intended to do with that. When we come to Psalms, it's really more like looking at a painting, The artist intends for me to feel something. The artist is trying to convey something to me, but it's a little less precise. It's a little less logical. It's more of an expression. And the truth is it can be very moving. I had a conversation with someone just this weekend that was talking to me about art. I like art. And then we were talking about art, and they were describing a painting to me that they had been looking at and looking at, and they were in tears describing the painting to me because it for some reason, just drew up so much nostalgia for them and all of these memories and all these that the written word could never do. It just drew out all of these emotions. And even in describing the painting, they were in tears. That's what a painting can do that maybe a jet engine can't. And a jet engine can do some things that a painting can't. But when we come to the Psalms, we're looking at them like a painting, like an expression that's trying to convey in some way what God is like and what it's like to be in relationship with Him. Now, we have a few more weeks left in this series. We have a few more attempts at this to be together and to just talk about our marvelous God. We've looked at six different characteristics of God already. We're going to look at another one this morning. We're going to open God's Word. And before we do that, I'm just going to ask if you would pray with me. Would you do that? Heavenly Father, we want to know you. We want to know what it's like to be in relationship with you. And we realize that you're teaching us. We realize that your word has something to say to us. And so I just pray this morning that you would speak through your word, that you would stir in our hearts, that your spirit would be stirring and moving this morning, Lord, that we would see you in a different way. I thank you for your word. I thank you for these expressions of you. And I pray that they would seek deep into our hearts this morning. pray this in your name. Amen. One of the things I'm most excited about in this series, and one of the things that we hoped it would do, is that it would change the way we see God, that it would broaden our picture of God in our own minds, that we might worship Him differently, that we might live differently because of it. I had an opportunity last week to sit in the front here and just listen Just listen to you worship. And it was such a blessing because you were singing so loud. And I just felt like we are worshiping God this morning. That is my prayer for us. And my prayer after this message is that we would spend some time in worship and we would just blow the roof off of this place in praise of a marvelous God because He is beyond description, which is one of the real frustrations for me in bringing the Word this morning is there is no way I can convey to you what I am intended to convey to you this morning from God's Word. There's just, it is such a frustration to me. (laughs) I could not sleep last night because I just kept saying, I have no words to express this. And I think maybe that's a little bit of the point. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 36. If 
you're looking for Psalm, try to open your Bible right to the middle. You'll probably hit it. If you don't have a Bible, you can cheat off a neighbor, or we brought some for you. So if you look around, there's probably a Bible nearby. You can grab one of those and use it. We're going to be in Psalm 36. If you're using our Bible, that's going to be page 465. And incidentally, if you're using our Bible this morning, you're welcome to take it with you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word, so that's our gift to you this morning. I want to start this morning by reading this psalm, and then we're going to walk through it together. It's a shorter one than the ones we've tried to tackle more recently, but it gives us a very clear image this morning. In fact, it actually gives us two very clear images this morning. So read with me Psalm 36, or listen if you prefer. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This morning, this psalm paints two very vivid pictures. So I have painted two very vivid pictures for you. It took me a long time to do these. Part of what makes me angry, by the way, I said there's art that makes me angry. Part of that is that someone has probably sold a painting like this for some millions of dollars. I just called it like black painting. But I've painted two very distinct images for you because the psalm paints two very distinct images this morning, and we're going to look at them. The first picture we see is the picture of life in rebellion to God. The first picture we see is somebody who is living with a wrong view of God, A totally wrong view of God. And look with me there in verse 1. It says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Now, who is speaking? Transgression is speaking. Anyone know what transgression is? Transgression is sin. That's not like a church definition. That's the dictionary definition of transgression is sin. And the wicked is not just someone who is completely evil. What does wicked mean? The dictionary definition of wicked means sinful. So if you wanted, you could read this verse, sin speaks to the sinful. And David has actually made sin a character in the psalm with a speaking role. And it speaks to those who have sin in their heart, those who are sinful. Sin is the active influencer in their life. And their rebellion is deeply rooted It extends deep into the heart. And that verse continues. As a result, there's no fear of God. The last part of verse 1. There's no fear of God before His eyes, for He flatters Himself in His own eyes that His iniquity cannot be found out and hated. 
There is no fear of God before his eyes. What is before his eyes? The person in this first picture that's being painted, what's before his eyes? Him. Himself. Instead of fearing God, he puts himself in his own eyes and he looks pretty darn good to himself. It says he flatters himself in his own eyes. He feels pretty good about where he is. Not only is he more focused on God than himself, but he's arrogant and ignorant and or probably both because he has no fear of God and he has no concern that his sin will be found out. He has no concern about the fact that he stands under the judgment of God. Now we hear this term, the fear of God, quite a bit in Scripture and often there's debate over what this means. Well, the fear of God doesn't mean actual fear. It's not like, ah, run around with your arms in the air. It's just reverence and respect. When we hear fear, we're meant to revere God and respect Him. Well, that's true. When we hear the fear of God, it actually also means that we're supposed to run around with our arms in the air. Ah, fear, like real mortal terror kind of fear. The truth is both words are used in Scripture and we tend to translate them both the same way, fear. In this case, David is saying somebody who lives in rebellion to an almighty, holy God should feel terror, should feel afraid because they stand under the judgment of God. And yet we find here in the first picture someone has no fear at all of God, living completely oblivious to the fact that the wrath of God is directed at the sin that's in their life. The man who's influenced by sin, the man who has sin speaking to his heart, who has no fear of God, is completely governed by sin. That's what we see in the next few verses. Verses 3 and 4. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that's not good. He does not reject evil. This guy is trouble. This guy has some problems. Trouble actually just comes out of his mouth. He speaks lies. It just comes out of him. It's a part of who he is because it's rooted so deeply in him. It says his actions are no longer wise or good. We see this picture and we think, yeah, this is a horrible person. Nobody's like this. And yet David's very careful to say he ceased acting wisely and doing good. What does that imply? It implies there was a point where he was acting wisely and doing good. But there's a point in his life where he says, you know what, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm done with living under God's rule or under God's law. I'll be God and I'll take it from here. I'll call the shots. I'll do what seems best to me. And then what does that look like when it plays out? It looks a lot like verse 4, which says he thinks about trouble. Even before he gets out of bed, he's thinking about what kind of trouble he can get into. And when he gets out of bed, what does he do? He aims himself at trouble. He points himself at it. And then when evil comes, what does he do? It says when evil comes, he does not reject it. That's like a way of saying he accepts it. When evil comes, he just says, yeah, I'll have some of that. What David is describing is a life that's lived in complete ignorance of God. It's life lived with a completely wrong view of God. Now before we move on from this, from this picture, I painted it black because black seems bad, right? Before we move on from this picture, does any of that ring true for you? Does any of that kind of resonate with where you are? I know what you're thinking. Well, I'm not evil if that's what you're asking. That's not what I'm asking. 
I think what I'm asking is this. Who's more important in your eyes? You or God? Who has the greater influence over your heart? You or God? Who has influence over what you think about, over what you direct yourself at, over what you actually do on a day-to-day basis? You or God? Because that's the question that's being asked here. When we say that someone is living a life in rebellion from God, we're not saying someone is living a life with a desire to be evil. David doesn't say he sets evil before his eyes. What does he say? He says he sets himself before his eyes. He puts himself before God. A life in rebellion is a life of choosing me over God. It's a life of saying, I'm going to take my plans and my ideas and my designs for my life, and I'm going to choose that instead of choosing to follow you. That's a life in rebellion. When I put myself in God's place, who is the God of my life? I am. When we look at the Garden of Eden, what was the problem? The problem was, Adam and Eve said, we know you're God, but we'd like to be God because we have a better idea. And so we're going to choose our plan over your plan, God. So we'll be God. Thank you. We'll take it from here. And how did that work out? Not well. Not well at all. It's a little bit uncomfortable for me that I, I resonate a little bit with this picture as David describes it, the life in rebellion to God. Because the truth is, I like my plan and my ideas, and I like me. And if someone is going to decide what I'm going to do with my life, I'd like it to be me. Because God has some uncomfortable things planned for me that I don't want to pursue. I identify a little bit more with this than I like to admit. It's a little bit uncomfortable. Let's look at the other picture that David paints in the psalm in the coming verses. The first picture we see, life in rebellion, a wrong view of God, ignorant of who God truly is. The second picture we see, like this is a picture of a person, right? This is a picture of a person who's living in ignorance of God. This is a picture of God in David's psalm. Look with me in verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. God's love is vast. It is so big. David is actually struggling to describe it and look at all of the characteristics that get wrapped up in God's love. He says, God, you are loving. God, you are faithful. God, you are righteous. God, you are a wise judge. You are a provider. You are a protector. He says, your unwavering, unchanging love. That's what steadfast means. Your love that never changes, it extends to the heavens, like to the stars, God. He says, your faithfulness goes to the sky. Your righteousness is like a a mountain. Your judgment is like the ocean. You are the provider and the protector of every living thing. And to me, when I read this, it reads a little bit like a love letter because these descriptions don't even really make sense. It's kind of like reading a a letter from like a love-struck boy to a girl he really likes when he's like, I love you as much as the ocean. It's like, that's not even a thing. You can't quantify love like that. That's kind of the point. And I think David is struggling. He's grasping, like, how can I possibly describe, God, what your love is like? I don't have words for it, so I'm just going to say, God, your love is high, and it's big, and it's 
deep and it's unsearchable and it's unknowable and it's just huge. It's the only words I have. All I can do is look around at what you made and say, what's the biggest stuff? It's like that. But more, that's what your love is like, God. Your love is vast. And he says, verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. God's love, David says, is precious. It is to be cherished. It is to be held onto and counted as dear. And then he says, your people take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Here's another picture that's like, that doesn't, does God have wings? I don't know. What is the picture that he's trying to describe here? Jesus used the same picture when he came into Jerusalem and said, oh, if I could just gather you under my wings like a mother hen or like a mother bird. What is the picture? It's a picture of protection. That in God's love and in God's power, we are protected, fiercely protected by the love of a loving parent. That kind of protection. The power of God that ought to be terrifying to those who live in ignorance of who God is. The first guy in verses 1 through 4. The power that he's supposed to be afraid of is the power that protects those who know God, who are under his protection, that fierce, loving father kind of protection. Because that power is wielded in love for those that know him. Then he's going to describe what it's like to be with God. Verse 8, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. God's love is extravagant. Not only God is your love vast. I can't even, I don't even have words to describe it. Not only is your love precious to me, God. I want to cherish it and hold on to it because in you I find protection. But then he says, God, your love is extravagant. Look at the way he describes it. He he describes those in relationship with God as those in the presence of a great king, but a loving king who just pours out abundance on those who are with him. God not only provides, but he provides abundantly. And he uses this phrase, they drink from the river of your delights. And as much as I've tried, I cannot get this picture out of my head. All I can think of is the chocolate river from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. (laughs) I know that's not what he means, but I think it's kind of like that. The river of your delights, it's this picture of just extravagance. This picture of like, this is amazing. This is beyond reasonable. It is beyond reasonable to have a chocolate river. It is beyond reasonable to love the way God loves us. It is so beyond description. It's a picture of immense pleasure and enjoyment in the presence of God, in the presence of a good and loving king who just pours out extravagant love on those in his family. The river of delight the fountain of life. It's this picture of living water, of true satisfaction, of true salvation. He says, in your light we have light. In your joy we have joy. We share in God's light. We, we share in His joy. The New Living Translation puts it this way, for you are the fountain of life, the light by which we see. 
God, you're all of it. Life itself comes from you. Light itself comes from you. Without you, we are in darkness. That's the other picture. A life in ignorance of who God really is. Now before we move on from this picture of who God really is, can I just ask, does anybody, does this ring true for any of you? Do any of you see God this way? Is this the God that you worship and sing to and come here to hear about and speak to each other about? Do you know God's love as vast and precious and extravagant? Is that your experience of Him? Because you see, there's, there's two pictures in this psalm. <laughs> there's the life in rebellion. There's the life lived in ignorance of who God is. There's a life where I put God, myself, in God's place and no longer have any fear of Him. No fear of consequence. No fear of being found out. I just live for myself. I'm ignorance, ignorant of His overwhelming power to judge and I'm ignorant of His overwhelming love. And the second picture is a life with God, a life lived in relationship with Him where God is precious to me and I understand His love and His relationship, where I'm on the right side of God's awesome power, where His power is the power to save me and His power is the power to protect me instead of the power to judge me and overwhelm me. It's a life lived in the abundance of His provision. It is lived in His presence as a child of the King feasting at his table. And so, we're meant to choose. We're meant to choose between this and this. We're meant to choose between these two pictures. And you're probably thinking what I'm thinking. Well, when you put it like that, do I want a life in ignorance under God's judgment or do I want a life with God in his abundance under his love? That's not really a question, is it? I mean... That's hardly even a choice. Yeah, it's hardly even a choice. And yet, how often do I choose this life? How often do I put myself in God's place? How often do I keep myself from knowing this about God, what he's truly like and living that way? Look with me at the last three verses of the psalm. We've looked at a life in rebellion from God. We've looked at life with God. And then we see at the end of the psalm, David, it's basically a cry for help. He says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of, wicked, of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. David pleads with God at the end of the psalm, Please, God, Don't change. Please, God, don't ever change. Please continue in your extravagant love to those who know you. Please. And please, don't let me live my life in rebellion to you. Please protect me from being trampled by arrogance or being driven away from your presence by wickedness and sin. Please, God, don't let that happen. I know how this ends, he says. I know what happens to those who live in rebellion to you. They do not win. They don't even get up when it's done. They are driven down. Please don't let that be true of me. 
Don't let me be like that first picture, God. That's the cry of David's heart in the psalm. And the question I have to ask is, that, is that the cry of my heart? Or do I want to live a self-absorbed, selfish, arrogant, ignorant life? When you say it like that, I don't. But I, I really do. I'm kind of bent that way. So what do we do? This is kind of a problem. When I look at it this clearly, it seems easy to choose. But the question is, which way am I running? Which picture am I more like and which one am I running to? Which way are you running this morning? Are you running from God or are you running to Him? I think that's a real question. The problem is that apart from God, I'm way more like this than I want to admit. Self-absorbed, ignorant, arrogant, very unaware of what God is really like. And the truth is that God is so much more than we could ever describe in words or paint in a picture. He's so beyond us. He's so unlike us. What are we supposed to do? See, God is this picture. He's pure and holy. And He's totally unlike us, completely without any sin. And all of His wrath is aimed at our rebellion and our sin. So what do we do? Because we can't fix it. I can't become like that. I can't. It's impossible. Scripture actually tells me that. So what do I do? David cries out, God, don't let me live in ignorance of you. Don't let me be driven away from you. And here's the thing. The whole story of Scripture is about this difference. (laughs) The psalm points out this difference very clearly. All of Scripture points out this difference very clearly. And the whole story of Scripture, the whole story of the gospel is God saying, you can't fix it, but I can And I love you so extravagantly that I will. You can't become like me, so I will become like you. Not that I will become sinful, but I will send my son to be like you. And he will live the life that you can't live. The sinless life. In submission to me, not in rebellion to me. And He will die the death that is due to you because my wrath is directed at your sin. My Son will die that death for you. And anyone who believes in that can be with me forever in my presence, in this picture, in this abundance, under that abundant love, the love of a loving Father and a powerful Father who has the power over sin. Scripture says that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Here's the picture that we see in the gospel. Jesus did not come into the world to point out the difference between him and us. He didn't come into the world to say, see, see how different we are? See how unlike you I am? He said he came into the world to save the world. He didn't come into the world to point out our sin. He came into the world to cover our sin. He covered it up. And then when God looks at me, he's like, hey, where's Dennis? Where'd Dennis go? All I see is Jesus, totally covered by God's love for me. How amazing is that? I mean, how amazing is that? God knows all of this. We said a few weeks ago, God has seen all the ugly parts of me, and he chooses to stay. 
He's seen all my ugliest stuff and he loves me anyway. And he didn't come to point out the difference. He came to cover it up. How amazing is that? What a marvelous God. Don't you think? What kind of a God loves like that? A marvelous God loves us that much. That is extravagant love that we see. Maybe this morning. That's the first time you've ever heard that. I would just say he offers that to you. He says, you can surrender your life to me. You can put your trust in me. And that is the kind of God that I am. I am the kind of God that pours out extravagant love on his children. And I want you to be with me. I don't want you to be ignorant of who I am anymore. I want you to surrender my life. You surrender your life to me. I want you to just give it up and say, God, you take over. Please, you can do that today. You have your connection card in your worship folder. There's a place on there. You can just say, I want to become a follower of Jesus. Man, I would be so excited if you did that today, if you made that decision. We would love to talk to you if you'd like to talk to us about that. My sense is that's not where most of you are. Most of you would say this morning, I've put my trust in Jesus. I've surrendered my life to him. I prayed the prayer. I know the story. I know all of that stuff. And I would just say, okay, well, what does your life look like? Who's in charge? Who's making the plans? Who's driving? Have you surrendered your life to God? Or have you just surrendered part of your week to Him? So I'm giving you a lot of hours, God. I'm giving you Sundays. My life group, those meetings are long and frequent. I'm in a Bible study. I teach Sunday school. What more do you want from me? Everything. It's like, I just, I just want everything. That's all. It's way better with me than without me. That's the picture that David paints for us. When I see God for who he truly is, when I know this about God, it changes everything. It changes everything. And my fear is that we, even as followers of Jesus, live in ignorance of who God really is. And we just don't really know him. And if we knew him this way, everything would change and everything would be different. And we would just stand in front of this picture and we'd just cry. Like that woman who's describing that painting to me this week. Because it just brings this flood of images and memories and emotions. And I cannot believe, God, that you love me this way. I cannot believe what you've done for me. We want to be moved by God's love. We want to respond to God's love. That's why we worship. That's why we sing. So I would just say, church, this morning... We have an opportunity to respond in worship to this God. This picture that David paints in Scripture says, you cannot believe how much he loves you. And so just stand before him and cry because he is awesome. That's what I want our response to be. I'm going to ask Joe and the team if they would come up I'm going to pray for us this morning as we're about to worship God. Heavenly Father, we cannot believe how much you love us. We are overwhelmed by your love. Lord, I would just pray for those here this morning that do not know you, who have not surrendered their life to you. Lord, I just pray right now, would you speak to their heart? Would you tug at them? 
If that's you and you're here this morning and you have your eyes closed and you're hearing this, I would just say, give your life to God this morning. Surrender to Him. It is so worth it. It is so worth it. Lord, for those of us who are trying to follow You and it's hard and we're, we're getting caught up in our own sin and our own plans, Lord, would You convict us of our sin now? Would You remind us of Your grace? And would You just pour out Your abundant love I pray right now as we sing and as we worship that you would be praised and lifted up, that your name would be made great in this place. pray this in your name. Amen.